0: I very much encourage people to go out into production and get that experience, and then do something after that. It is uh, a high-stress job, and uh, that's okay. You, you, but you learn a lot. But that experience is unparalleled. Get in, get it, you know, get involved with your packer, and uh, be the leader. I mean, you need to take charge, own that entire operation of feed operations from from a personal standpoint. The people don't have to report to you. You're a servant to all those people. Swinett.
1: It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like AB Vista, New nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just All, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adaso provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe and sustainable way. Alanco's Prevacent, a new perspective Visit PrevacentPERS.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions.
2: Genesis, the first power in genetics. Welcome to Sfinite Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonsalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's
1: sponsor highlight is about AB Vista, an animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a Stimbiotic, targeted to improve fiber digestion request access contact nam at abvista.com
2: hello everyone today we have dr jeff hansen and he's gonna ch- talk about formulation as a new production swine nutritionist how are you jeff
0: i'm great thanks Marcio.
2: yeah appreciate our time coming coming to the show again and uh, the first thing jeff why why this topic why should we care about this topic? Well,
0: the uh, when as we talked, the thing I like to do is help people understand. I spent 20 years uh, doing the production nutritionist role for Murphy Farms, Murphy Brown, Smithfield. And I think it's important for people to kind of have a bearing about what they might be expected to do when they look at a role. And then really how the so describing that. But then also, what's the historical context? How do you use your ed- education? You know, what kind of uh, resources might you look forward to using? Um, how how will you think? You know, how should you think about problems? Different things like that. That's why I think it's important to discuss that.
2: Very cool. And uh, and I mean, yeah. So I, when we get out of grad school, it, it's not like there's a step by step program. So that that's that's great. So they wanted a job What should we do?
0: Yeah, so the the first day is is always really interesting But you know as I as I transitioned I went to NC State for a couple years So I had a little bit of flavor working with producers But uh, starting with uh, Murphy farms, you know The first task was to establish some sort of formulation method of course in many cases. That's already set up um, but if you're a new person going to a company that's never had a nutritionist, you know you're going to have to establish your formulation matrix and pick a formulation package, and you know your role is going to be to help uh, the procurement team. And this is an important topic. Your job is to help the procurement team, oftentimes, um, determine what they should purchase to make feed for animals. Um, it is a huge responsibility, but you're in a support role, and so that's a that's a key thing when you think of developing your formulation software. That's just a single decision, right. and that's really the easy part. How you establish what ingredients to buy, what you what you test for. You know, there's purchasing contracts that have specifications that'll oftentimes be coupled with a QA program. So it's not just hey, I need to formulate this feed and I'm done. That's not the role of the nutritionist in a production company. It is your nutrition program and you should feel personally responsible for every aspect of uh, formulation, purchasing, uh, feed milling, all the way to execution in the production environment. That includes feed transportation and milling and all of those aspects. You should feel personally responsible for every one of those aspects and you should endeavor to ultimately touch each one of those and make sure they're being executed perfectly. So I learned that over 20 years. Um, I didn't learn that in year one. And so it is a tremendous task if you're walking into a new organization. Uh, plus, in addition to that, by the way, you're going to be the, uh, in many cases, the, the, the research specialist as well or the advisor with the veterinarians uh, to the production operation. So it's a multi uh, or
2: multifaceted role
0: in most cases.
2: Very nice. That makes total sense, Jeff. And all right, so as we think about it, eh, I got, I got the, the software, right? And then what's next, right? Uh, and one question I have to you is, where is the baseline, right? Is NRC the baseline? And then after that, you're going to use with chemistry or whatever, what's, what's, where do we start from that standpoint?
0: Yeah, so that's, that's absolutely the, the right question to ask, right? You, you come out, and everybody's been taught NRC, and, and then you <laughs> buy corn that's like 18% moisture. And there's no 18% moisture <laughs> corn. We thought it was 12%. Yeah, yeah.
2: And,
0: and there isn't anything, you know, the entire East Coast trade's on a 155 5 corn basis. And you're going, well, that's not what's in there. And so it is important for you to start to realize this nutrient matrix that you have. NRC is a fantastic point to start, but it's right. completely wrong because <laughs> at a minimum, moisture is wrong on the corn. And, and you need to reconcile in the NRC that those, they, they did a wonderful job of establishing those on a standardized moisture basis. And so many students really don't realize that that's what it's based on. Um, they'll standardize back requirements to that type of a basis. Ideally, we would follow much like the dairy NRC or the beef NRC or even the horse NRC in that we'd go to dry matter. Um, mm-hmm. That would solve a lot of our problems, but uh, but we don't. We're swine nutritionists, us and chicken guys and, uh, you know, uh, turkey nutritionists, we don't deal with that in, a, in a, an effective way. But you do have to realize that moisture is a bigger issue than what you were trained to believe and that you have to reconcile past that on formulation and nutrient matrix. And so I do recommend depending on your organization, um, establishing your nutrient profiles, um, using a wet chemistry method and establish your base matrix, go back to a dry matter basis and, and, and do all your analyses and, and, uh, do those on a dry matter basis, and then you can adjust your moisture and factor everything to moisture in that, in that product. Um, probably the – and, and I'm, not, I'm not a hater of NIR. I love mm-hmm. NIR. That mm-hmm. can never be better than the, the underlying wet chemistry, though, except mm-hmm. for probably um, – there are some things like IV, iodine value of a product, it 's actually a great tool for that. It can be better than uh, some of the wet chemistry metrics, but interesting. most of our amino acids and things like that I think are are interestingly adequate amino acids uh, minerals. Um, you know I was fortunate when we, when I first started at Murphy Farms. The best investment I think I ever made was a bomb calorimeter. Mm. Right. And that is, it, it without a doubt, the the single best investment because right. we don't start with EE or ME or NE. We start with gross energy, mm-hmm. and um, that's where you you have many products that you don't know the origin. Uh, it may be a blend cookie meal, as an example, from a particular set of plants that may it may only use you know apple pies from uh, McDonald's or whoever base manufacturer is of, of those products they have a product stream and a lot of times you'll receive that and it will be that product stream and it'll be unique and so being able to establish that and I, I always used uh, I would I always kind of went back to you know forming a statistic you needed at least seven samples so I'd request from vendors seven samples representing different production runs or production days. Mm. And in doing that, we could run our chemical analyses and establish a mean and standard deviation for that product uh, to go into our formulation matrix, just to give us some perspective. And then you would do that analysis over time, and, and you would figure out what is uh, that mean. And then, you know, we, we'll, I have something to talk about on stochastics, but variance is important. And how you set your matrix is really important. Not all products are created the same, and so I do want to touch on that a little later. Yeah. No
2: one one uh, that's that's great. Uh, one comment on on my share still is, you know, if you're wrong by one or two percent in my share, that means that you're probably wrong by one or two percent on your uh, feed efficiency, right? If you're if you're me- messing that up because of uh, it's a one, two percent that you are not accounting for that when you do our caloric efficiency, it's, it's going to be uh, wrong. It is. And, and it is uh, it, it's a huge issue
0: for mash feed in particular. You always saw and, and, you know, people that feed mash feed, they'll see these wild swings in feed conversion throughout the year corresponding to when they start harvesting corn. And uh, if you don't dry it down to a standardized moisture, then it, you should expect it to vary according to that. And so I think, uh, you know, I've got uh, friends that wanted to call me out on the article. I wrote the feedstuffs on that. But the fact is that people just need to recognize corn moisture is real. Mm. Wheat's not a big issue because we harvest it in the middle of summer. It's dry. I mean, there's very little tr- uh, wet wheat harvested in the United States, at least, or probably Canada. Uh, maybe some in Canada, but certainly moisture is your biggest one that I think people underestimate in pigs. Um, I don't think they underestimate it in other species.
2: How about uh, digestible amino acids there, Jeff?
0: Yeah. So as we go back through the history, uh, the advancement of, of major advancements is digestible amino acid formulation, and and I was at Texas a when Daryl Knabe and and uh, T.D. Tanksley really started uh, pushing that. Teresa Nebraska from Poland, you know, they brought the technique for doing the cannulations and brought it over here and started doing a lot of that work. And it's just, you know, it's transformative. Um, and some mm-hmm. of the early work, it wasn't perfect, of course. But like so many things, it's always small increments. I, I kind of think of it as a tree. You might go, you know, you might go like this, but you're still making advancement. If we could go from here to here, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Very few times we're going to do it, but uh, I think establishing the digestibility of the products is key, and categorizing products: ring-dried blood meal versus spray-dried blood meal. Those have different digestibilities. Try to acknowledge those differences and take those into account. I think is a very important aspect in in the digestible formulation. And then I, I also listed because the next step is ideal protein, mm-hmm. and so I was coming through college uh, or, or my doctorate program when ideal protein really hit you know the hit us Wang and Fuller and then Dave Baker. I'm pretty sure Dave just randomly pulled these numbers out of the air,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: he's such a smart guy. They were probably right, mm-hmm. um, but Dave uh, Dave did a fantastic job, and and ideal protein is such an important concept. Um, that, you know, we're, we're formulating on truly an ideal protein as we get more and more uh, synthetic amino acids, that becomes more relevant. So you're ratioing them to each other typically, or uh, in history it was factoring, but ratioing is a better technique.
2: Very good. And then uh, I know you want to talk about toxins and, and anti, anti-nutrition factors as well.
0: And really that's just in the consideration of the products that you buy. And as a part of the specification um, that, you know, I know uh, some friends of mine in Mexico formulated with toxin levels in mind. Um, And so there's different ways you can account for that. We finally got some good effective tools for vomitoxin that we didn't have that many years ago or weren't aware of. Um, And so, you know, you try to mitigate some of those by, by formulating to a you know, not-to-exceed level. But how that relates as your role in the specifications for purchasing, we used to buy, um, they called it chicken corn. All the vomitoxin we had in, I think it was uh, 2009, 2010, was just horrible. And we had to put an upper limit on the purchases of, of uh, corn and wheat we bought some wheat from, that was theoretically free of vomitoxin, and mm-hmm. uh, it was not, it was it had two parts. And so it was a real issue trying to formulate with that stuff. But you have an important role to play. You don't have to create the solution, mm-hmm. but you need to be involved, particularly in a QA perspective and, and helping define, well, what are we going to do about these? And there are options more today, so. Toxins and anti-nutritional factors are important. Feeding raw soybean flakes is not a good thing. Uh, we need to be aware of those things. But there's not that many. Just uh, always be careful that we don't know what we don't know, right? Yes. We'll, we'll learn some new things.
2: Would you, in that case, uh, from the mycotoxin side, uh, would you try to sometimes segregate you, uh, meaning finishing... Versus South Farms and those things. That's a great
0: point. And we did uh, down here, you know, we're uh, North Carolina was never fantastic at corn production. We had really small farms, so you could really never string together no- enough acres to be a professional corn grower. Today that's not true, but in history that was absolutely a problem. And we had aflatoxin and we have fumonacin. We still have fumonisin issues, uh, some, some vomitoxin, but you would, uh, for local corn, we would purchase that, and oftentimes if it's high in aflatoxin, we had tested, and the really high ones we'd put in a bin, and it would only go to late finishing. Mm-hmm. And we'd try to keep cleaner, clean corn for our sows, and we realized there was a shortcoming of, of the tests. Um, we never took large enough samples and big enough tests, no doubt. But, but what we found was that you had to buy the grain. Um, if you didn't buy that grain, if you rejected it, that farmer would never come back to you. And so we learned, um, the hard way that you really do have to buy that. If you're going to be the dealer for that uh, farmer in his area and the elevator, you got to take his product. And so we got better at, at, uh, segregating and investing in tests and, and, uh, it is an important aspect, um. To be able to differentiate those products and manage your risk separately, and I'd like to say that the sows are the ones we always try to avoid. Uh, the animals you own the longest are the ones you want to, to put the least risky things into. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do it, do it late finishing when that animal's going to be gone pretty quickly. Um, it's the lowest risk kind of endeavor. It's an animal you've invested a lot into, but honestly, um, it's yeah. probably have to eat through the. The shortest amount of time.
2: So. They can't handle quite a bit. I don't know if
0: they can handle it, but it's just from a risk
2: mitigation,
0: it is right. the animal owned the shortest amount of time. So if there's liver damage, if there's
2: long term effects, you don't have to live
0: with them quite as long.
2: Now right.
0: you're going to own for a couple of years.
2: Right, 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 right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, all right. How about energy? Yeah. So energy.
0: You know, I mean, obviously, that's the first most important thing. I'm a host of your, uh, your guests have always talked about, you know, energy. And John Patience, I think, is one that's a huge proponent. It is the biggest part of your diet. 85-plus percent of your feed cost is just energy, whether that's for maintaining the animal or growing the animal. Um, you know, and as you think about energy, that's the, probably the hardest thing to reconcile. So, you know, as you know, I'm very passionate about energy and the theories of of, uh, how animals utilize energy, do they eat to grow, do they grow to eat, you know, whatever that is. And why it's important are, these are really important thoughts because it influences how you decide to formulate and how you decide to come to uh, a conclusion about how you select your energy density. So the first obvious problem, you come out of university, you're like, okay, I'm going to formulate a diet. I'm going to use corn and soy because that's, you know, in Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa. That's what we grow is, you know, corn and soy. Um, And I get down to the southeast, and there's this thing called fat. And uh, it's a tremendous uh, value in some regions. And uh, so it was a really – a learning lesson for me when I came down here, how do you decide on an energy budget? Well, the NRC says, well, the NRC just reported an energy. Um, and they do go through some pretty elaborate steps. And it's gotten better over time to define how energy gets consumed. And so energy um, is so important. First and foremost, you ought to make sure you buy a bomb calorimeter or clearly understand a starting point because establishing that takes care of a lot of variance. I've looked at a lot of trials. and If they would have actually just measured the gross energy and the moisture of the corn, that would have explained a lot of the variance that has been seen. So um, then you come back to um, picking your energy level. Well, in the Southeast, we have a lot of fat. And in the US, we have a lot of fat that's available to be fed. It was very reasonably priced, you know, ratios in the two to one ratio, um, very, very common uh, that I had seen in my early years. Um, we have a lot of restaurant grease that's available where there's populated areas on the East Coast, where there's uh, processing facilities. You know, we just have an abundance of that and it was valuable. And so uh, it was and we had expensive corn. Because North Carolina, as an example, you know, imports two thirds of the grain that's consumed. Uh, I think we produce 150 million bushels and consume probably around uh, 400 500 million bushels total. So wow. uh, we are a dramatic importer. We were the largest export destination for Ohio corn in years past. I know that um, if we are a separate country, but it, it is—it's it, an important topic because. How you establish it, then ratioing, you know, certainly putting more energy in the feed is more costly. If you go back to Tim Staley's reviews and back before we knew anything about amino acid ratioing and, and Lee Chiba's lysine to energy work, um, what you saw was that by increasing fat by 1%, you saved four to five points in feed conversion. And Wayne cast and I had these conversations that Well, the other benefit was we saw this boost in growth. And I'll be honest with you, in the 80s and 90s, uh, early 90s, Mm -hmm. 70s, 80s, and early 90s, the reason that we saw a lot of that growth impact was we had a much uh, more genetically obese animal. So that fat, you, you would feed fat, and you would see a markedly fatter animal. And I would tell you today, in our very lean lines, you get something at fifteen to seventeen millimeters of fat. Feeding fat does not change it by very much. Nothing compared to what. I um And I, I mean, you can find examples, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but but I think most people would agree that that's probably a true statement today, and it changes a little bit about how you think about formulation. We don't have to think about the impact on leanness like we used to. And so, you know. Uh, that fat, you could you could establish then an economic value based on this. And and so I was trying to reconcile, well, what's the right answer? You know, is there a growth rate impact? Isn't there? Is it all in increasing fat on the carcass? Um, you know, today, and, and and when I first started Murphy's, they, they took fat down from like 25 millimeters to 18, 20 millimeters in less than five years. It was oh, dramatic. Wow. Um, wow. It, it was, uh, and so we had these animals. We didn't, we didn't have to fetal, uh, have to worry about the leanness very much. We were still on a uh, carcass leanness premium or back fat and muscle depth premium, but most of the value come in muscle depth. And uh, so we we would have to figure out what was the optimum energy density.
2: Yeah, just 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 one question here, Jeff. You mentioned the ratio a little bit, right? Uh, for the folks that are not familiar, eh, there's very easy ways and very complex ways to find the optimal energy level. Eh, right so if, you're, if you know if we're here sitting on the desk and you're like, Jeff, I need to know right now in five seconds if I need to feed higher energy or low energy, right? There's a way you can you can figure that out, right? So if you can ex- expand that uh, to the audience,
0: well, I think you're talking just the fat to corn ratio, right? Right. Yeah, and and that is uh, you know kind of that historic uh, Atwater caloric value, right? Um, it's I think that's two, 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 2.2 times as much energy in in uh, fat as there in it is in a carbohydrate, right? So that at a minimum is just a simple way to think about it. Uh, but we would say, uh, honestly, you get below a three to one fat to corn ratio, and we would always have fat in those diets. And, and it depended. Uh, yeah. I would tell you that in my history, I felt like fat had more value in the most expensive feeds. And so in my formulation method, I would see a ratio of like a five to one. Mm. Before it would come out in my late nursery diet, mm-hmm. um, your most expensive feeds, fat saves feed. I mean, it clearly does. So intuitively, it just saves has the most value in the most expensive feeds.
2: Just like when you feed I mean, the Dan. Probably, um, but for sure,
0: you, you know, you add a bunch of soy, a bunch of expensive ingredients. You know, I would just add a lot of fat because if I got more growth out of that, it was a lower cost per pound of gain. Now a lot of people disagreed with me. I would stick seven percent in added fat in the <laughs> very first nursery diet. The everybody best. at K-State thought I was dumb and I didn't care <laughs> all too long, I wasn't wrong by much. Uh, but ultimately Dustin Kendall brought it down, brought me back to reality in the three and a half to five percent added fat range. Um, Super but, interesting. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Seven. Well, so, there's a lot of Focus on that particular one, but then you separate out that first two nursery diets the, the you know, um, when they're transitioning after that, I mean, it's just like a growth finish pig, man. It, uh, uh, fat saves feed and it always has the most value and the most expensive. Now there's debate about, uh, and the older you get, then you get a, a greater impact on them, gain is what uh, the theory is. Um, so Dustin and I spent a lot of time arguing about this, and we we built these uh, prediction equations for uh, each diet, and we still found that that four or five to one ratio in early growers um, was more valuable. And it I've tried the K-State equation; it doesn't agree with that, um, which is fine. I mean, you know, pick some data, pick something. You're never going to be wrong. Yeah, pick something right. Right, but. Plan on moving on from there, too. Uh, right. So you can do that, and, and you look, it's somewhere, early growers, you know, I think it's a four-to-one, and the the lowest you'll get is three to three-and-a-half-to-one. You get you get above a three-and-a-half-to-one, and it shouldn't be in most of your finisher diets is what most people would think.
2: Right. That makes total sense. Another one that's a good rule of thumb that I always like to, to uh, think and like your thoughts is, hey – on average, 1% fat, how much feed efficiency improvement, right? And, and how much growth, if any? I know there's discussions around that too.
0: Yeah, I I'll, honestly, there, I know Wayne has that in his brain, um, but I can't ever put a percentage. I just know 1% fat, 4 to 5 points of feed conversion.
2: Okay, so points
0: yeah i, I yeah. express
2: it there so that's one and a half two percent so yeah like two that. percent right if yeah okay, yeah that makes total sense yep i, I know historically people talk hey one percent fat, one percent growth and two percent feed efficiency, and then more recently one percent fat point eight percent growth one point eight percent feed efficiency, but again system system dependent and all those things and fade. yeah and and you can find data
0: to support whatever opinion you want to have right um the experience that Dustin and I, when Dustin was working with me at Murphy's, he did a pretty extensive review of, of uh, different bits of modern literature. I think you have to go be careful going back because your leanness factor matters. Um, and I don't hate on old literature. You know, that was in my day. It's not that old. Um, <laughs> but, but in all fairness, uh, you do get into like amino acid ratios that – once you go back too far, it's really hard to interpret it in a modern-day context of a lean animal and so forth. But even at that, you know, we would only see growth enhancement up to maybe 1% to 2% added fat. And beyond that, you would see no change. And, and I liken it to Bob Fritchen when he was at the University of Nebraska many, many years ago. You know, when he fed fat at 1% to keep dust levels down. And so, is there an impact in barn that is not necessarily growth related? You saw it as a growth enhancement,
2: right? But it's because
0: of uh, dust or something else.
2: Yeah, or even palatine sometimes, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, one thing I want to ask you uh, still, and I know it's more philosophical probably than than anything else. But maybe there's data, and I don't know. But you mentioned they eat to grow or grow to eat. I know. I know you. You giggle when you said that. So I'm curious. Uh, on thoughts, yeah, I, I challenge my
0: employees on this one because the the what it goes back to in my growing up uh, at A and Texas A you know we were trained by beef nutritionists largely in energetics, and so you know you had to study the the California net energy system in which they scheduled growth in a feedlot by how much they you had to calculate the maintenance and then how so much for growth. And you would feed them so much to let them grow at a certain rate, and of course, to a swine nutritionist or a poultry nutritionist, that sounded dumb uh, other than the fair, you know gestation bar, but you want them to grow as fast as you can, so it, it wasn't intuitive. But if you think of the inverse of that is that well, if you're limiting intake and limiting energy, um, they could only grow so much, and so then you go, okay, well, growth is not um, is really the driver of that and you look at the energy systems for the dairy industry um, so if you look at milk production uh, or cow growth uh, whatever activity you want to focus it into the way that these other uh, larger animal species have characterized energy uh, and energetics is related to mass and mass accretion some productive function uh, and that was like the first thing I did when I left university. I bought all these NRCs and read uh, read parts of them. I didn't read all of them. But mm-hmm. for sure, the dairy NRC um, and the beef NRC, and then the horse NRC, which was really uh, fascinating because that, that year, which is a lot of years ago, they laid out the guidelines for working horses, for pleasure horses. So now they related it to activity or uh-huh. work. So in every one of the, all three of those species, you look at it and you go, well, they define intake relative to the energetics for maintenance and its productive function. Um, They, you know, it wasn't ever about the inverse of that. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my starting bias. And then when Mm -hmm. I started at, at Murphy's, you know, I was trying to get prediction of a prediction equation for intake. And if you looked at the NRC, shoot, I don't think they published one since like 1970 something. And it was the dumbest thing. It was just a prediction equation. They're going to eat this. And, and you're like, well, that's not, that's completely wrong. It's wrong every day in every situation. And so I couldn't reconcile. Uh, and I remember Jerome Pekus, um who studied CCK at Mark in uh, play center, I, I know jerome and, and he said they they had hyperalimentated some pigs, and I want to say they killed them. so you, there's a point at which they can't there there's a regulatory aspect to that. And so it, I don't like the context of how people say intake drives growth. it doesn't. Um, if you restrict intake, you will restrict growth. That is mm-hmm. a true statement, mm-hmm. but that's because you you have a maintenance requirement and you think of it in the context of these other species and so what i did with uh, dean and i used to go around on a few things and that was when he was at pic and so i was trying to develop uh, an intake model for a pig and ultimately i i did a nonlinear regression on a bunch of data i had and found that it was Quite simply described as, you know, A times average daily gain plus B times body weight to the C power. And C was between 0.6 and 0.66, which, you know, Nublé and all the other people would, uh, any, any European would say yeah, that's probably more right than
2: 0.75. Okay, yeah.
0: And in those models, I could come up and, and uh, explain just on raw feed intake, you know, R squared of 0.78 to 0.95. Um, you know, most single experiments, you're in a 0.95 type range on intake, fat feeding levels would, you know, you could account for those. If you do ME, NE, any one of those was a better predict than was just intake. But if you tie the inverse of that, and that is you say that intake drives growth, you will not find a model that is as robust and repeatable. And so it'll end up being in the 0.5 because gross is not predictable. Animals get sick. Josh Selsby, one of, one of the smartest guys of my modern era, only because he showed that these uh, cells in heat stress can't basically take the garbage out. Now, that's the simple, uh, the Hanson review of that, you know. <laughs> but literally, the, the thermodynamics don't allow those cells to uh, expulse their waste mm. it's it's a therm- thermodynamic problem and the same would be true it's a, it's a, a substrate and product problem it is purely thermo uh, I say thermodynamic but it could be um, oh the, what's the e- equilibration you know I mean you just can't move the process so it's pretty intuitive to me oh, that this taste you know, are st- they're regulating, they're re- regulating intake, of course. Um, but they're, that intake is generally regulated to meet the energy requirement. Now they can move just a little bit of, you know, if you're off by your lysine just a little bit, they can overeat just a little bit and store that. And that's why you tend to see them get a little fatter if it's off by a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, uh, Wayne Green uh, uh, who taught me nutrition and, at A&M, gave us this article, I think it was in Science, and it's remarkable how close animals eat to their lifetime uh, energy requirements. Mm. If you define it in that kind of an equation, um, we we eat to within like a hundred thousandth of our requirement. So even though I'm slightly obese, <laughs> I still ate to my majority of my requirement. I mean, it, it it didn't take much to, to accumulate this little bit of extra
2: love that I've got on me. Interesting. Well, do you think, on that topic, Jeff, do you think the, you know, all these models trying to predict intake, okay, well, if the temperature changed and then the intake changed that much and blah, blah, blah. For me, sometimes it almost feels like a utopic a dream sometimes. I think it's honorable, but sometimes from a practical standpoint, at least for the short term, because we work with production systems and that's a big ship that changes very slowly. Then if I look at the average of that system and you have all this noise, right? But but the average is going to change just a little bit and it's extremely hard to predict every single pig, every single bar, super hard, right? So what's your thoughts on hey shouldn't we be doing models like the energy one that we worked on with Jose Soto and, and K-State was more and PIC was more like you know what I mean from a overall ship standpoint the whole system yeah what are your thoughts on that
0: yeah so I, I'll give you a better example every year I had to predict for a budget the feed conversion um, in every division for every feed mill in their diet so we We built those models, and then we'd look at the variance. And most of the time, you could very accurately predict the system performance. And when you'd find deviation, that you of course look for those deviations. and you're looking for things like pellet quality and particle size, and and of course, mortality, age of mortality, place weight, sail weight, how fast they grow. If you could have predicted those accurately, you would have nailed feed conversion. So to your point, the intake is absolute I, I would tell you that we could predict to within a point on feed conversion. Um right. I was the one running that. So all my friends at Murphy's and Smithfield would say, Well, you just made that data up. <laughs> but the truth is that yeah. it, it is known what the impact of daily gain and mortality and when those animals die. If you can account for those things. They are knowable. They're not predictable, but they're knowable once they occur. All of a sudden, you find that your variances become very small and are explainable.
2: All right. Um, So what's the next step here? Uh, M-E, N-E, so what's it's big?
0: Depends on where you're at, really. If you're in Brazil and out in Mato Grosso, you're going to feed corn and soybean meal. Pretty sure. Um, if you're in Iowa, you're going to feed pretty much corn and soybean milk. There's maybe some fat, maybe some DDGs. Um, the, the, the interesting part is ME works just fine. We've got tremendous data on ME on a really broad range of ingredients. We're getting closer on NE. Um, so I think today you could use either one. But as you get broader, the Europeans who have a wider selection historically of ingredients, whether that's barley and rye and tapioca, and just have a, a, a much more diverse palette of products, NE is more valuable in those situations. You don't have to have NE to do corn and soy.
2: Right, right.
0: I mean, it's just, there, there's a relationship that's different um, between caloric efficiency and ME level, whereas it tends to be flat for any. I mean, that's our objective for any, right? Right. So, you know, I think uh, pick a system. The biggest thing is it's relative values because your role as a nutritionist is to establish the relative value of each product so that the procurement person knows what to purchase for the animals. The goal is not formulation. The goal is to feed a set of animals and make money. And so you got to, you know, people will have to get past this idea that it's all this technical mumbo jumbo. You make all your, you know, the perfect formulation. And if that thing isn't executed right, um, then that's irrelevant. But purchasing is one of those aspects. You have to remember your job is to provide that. Typically, the buyer with some capability to value products relative to uh, all the different options out there.
2: Very good, anything else on on establishing the energy level? No, I think uh, we didn't
0: talk briefly about stochastics, did we no we we didn't yeah, yeah, that's right. one that um, the the thing I learned down here is is uh, each ingredient has uh, variants, and corn has on a dry matter basis probably the least amount of variance or soybeans if you get them from the same region soybeans from. Brazil versus soy meats from North Carolina will be different. Um, but in general, they have uh, less variance than other products. So whether that's a DDG, a meat and bone meal, meat and bone meal was a classic example. We had one bin and we bought meat and bone meal from three different plants and it was three different products. So what is the value of that purchase? Well, I needed to recognize that um, that variance was bad. I represent the average um, and that's not necessarily the real feeding value. And so what I uh, spent a little time understanding from different people was stochastic formulation. I checked out Bob Brills and I wrote a nice article on this uh, with uh, uh, Tom Delafonzo. So Tom Delafonzo really did uh, help Bob Brill build, build his stochastic formulation aspect. I'm like, this is fantastic. I love this. It gives me the ability to take into account uh, this variance. The problem was it didn't help me solve that problem of a highly invariable ingredient. All of those three bone meal meat and bone meals were going into one bin mm-hmm. at any one point in time, not at the same time either by me. and so maybe I should have had multiples, but now I had to have three different bins, and that wasn't going to happen mm-hmm. so. Then, you know, and, and that's just the way it was going to work. And so what we figured out was um, if you take, you can take and apply that variation in the formulation method, which was what Tom was describing, um, but it didn't help me in my purchasing. And so I could apply that same variance for my purchasing uh, side on my matrix a mean minus some fraction of the standard deviation. And it didn't accomplish the same thing necessarily as stochastics, but it helped me value my ingredients. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's again, the key role is a purchasing role. We're supporting that purchasing person. And so taking that fraction on the front side of your matrix helps you improve your purchasing decision.
2: Very interesting. Do you have a recommendation for the... Uh, how I go with the half
0: standard deviation.
2: Half, half standard half deviation. Half. All right. And how about... Um, your overall thoughts on pelleting and particle size. Well, so, you know, I came through K-State when Joe Hancock was
0: doing his fantastic work on, on uh, particle size. Um, and it, it's some of the most important work in my career, you know, uh, as a swine nutritionist since the 80s to now. I think particle si- understanding the value of particle reduction is probably one of the single most valuable things that's been done. And so, right. you know, hats off to Joe for doing that leading that charge. Um, the other aspect of that is then pelletizing. In order to handle a very finely ground product, um, you had to you had to pelletize it ultimately, or use a big Dutchman liquid feeding system. And no one in the southern US was ever going to do that because of mold and, and the mess that it creates. But Um, ultimately i believe those two tie together and uh pelleting in early years um we said created 12 13 percent improvement in feed conversion the reason why is because they had to grind it fine to make a pellet worth of crap (laughs) i know that sounds like wayne cass saying that but that's the truth Um, these guys uh, they, the old feed commercial feed manufacturers had to grind fine to make a pellet worth the darn, and so those you can't uncouple. Uh, what you can say is that separately, pelleting uh, does not. There's no amount of that little bitty amount of gelatinization that's relevant on the side of a pellet relative to digestibility. The value of pelletizing predominantly comes from the particle reduction and we need to uh, pelletize that finely ground product in order to handle it effectively, or to handle a diverse range of products to create a more uniform bulk density. And so in a nutshell, those two ideas have to come together at some point. Um, and Charles Stark, when, when I first started at Murphy's, he and I you know, both came through the K-State program when we were studying particle size, and uh, they had roller mills, all these giant monstrosity, 55-inch roller mills, um, whatever the width is. Uh, they were enormous, but they had to be adjusted continuously. And so one of the first projects that uh, when I first started at Murphy's was we lost, for some reason, like 1,000 tons of feet. It just quit happening. And one of the things they did was they went from these roller mills and replaced them with hammer mills. And we found out, I think we were producing at the Chief, you know, 16 to 20,000 tons a week, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, And we lost 500 tons, is what Charles and I could come up with, just on particle size reduction. That we didn't need anymore. And there were some weight changes, some other things, but um, that was the first lesson that, wow, particle size mattered. We were able to drop it from, You know, 650 down to 550 or some number like that, Um, and we 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 lost all these tons. So then ultimately, and again, when you're far from the corn pile, that basis matters. We have tremendously expensive corn, and so then you need to extract every every ounce out of it. And we got hung up on some of the early work from uh, Brett Healy. You know, when they looked at uh, Kelly Wandra where they looked at efficiency and how the K-State data said with like a three-inch grinder, it was terribly inefficient to grind down to below 550 microns. Well, when you made a grinder the size of my office, (laughs) um, it took no more energy to grind it to 100 microns than it did to 550. Oh, wow. I mean, it's eight cents a ton no matter what you did. And, you, you know, the scale is just what people missed um, with that particle size stuff. So for us, we understood that value tremendously. And uh, and we made bigger and bigger grinders. And we invested in one in a feed mill. And we're like, what the heck happened to feed conversion over there? You know, we, well, we got a truck-sized grinder then. And ultimately, yeah. I can tell you by the time I was leaving, we were targeting below 300 microns. Um, and my goal was to have a mill at 100 microns if that gives you some perspective. Not all lines like fine particles. Um, some respond poorly to that. Um, it's not a genetic problem because my geneticist friends, Matt Culbertson in particular, mm-hmm. um, would say there's no genetic link. Well, that's true, but it's either line or breed or, you know, line, right, because group. it's it's not occurring in some and it's occurring in others. But, uh, but if you can handle it, I mean you're taking diets. We had diets in the ninety to ninety-five percent digestible range. In reality.
2: Wow. Yeah. Oof. So of course, like I said, some lines, that makes sense. And then and then on top of that, if there's more disease challenges, right? In some of the flows, it's it's even worse, right? Yeah, that's one that Harry Snelson, when I first started at NC State '93.
0: They had an ulcer task force. Harry was at Carroll's. I think Hammer was at Murphy's at the time. Different veterinarians. But what, what Harry, uh, in the reports that I read, could really see was that you would have um, like a mycoplasma, seroconversion for mycoplasma is when those animals would start expressing these ulcers. And they would bleach out. I mean, they'd be pure white. Their ears would go pure white. They'd have massive ulcers in their stomachs. Uh, it was horrible. They had a lot of mortality. Um, But I can tell you, the same systems and the same barns, 20 years later, we were at like 200, 250 micron and none of it. I mean, you just didn't find them. And so I don't know why, but uh, it wasn't because we didn't have mycoplasma either. Um, Some of the things we did over the years, though, we did treatment diets. So we would grind fine. And about eight, 12 weeks uh, in the in the finishing, um, we would offer up a very coarse ground diet because I want to say Purdue, I always get this wrong, but I want to say Purdue is the one that found that you could intervene with a coarse ground diet and the ulcers would heal. But if you kept feeding them a fine ground diet, they would not heal. Um, Dustin Kendall always told me I was wrong on who I quoted. So I think it's right that it's Purdue, but. But that, uh, that
2: is an important aspect, that you could treat these things. Yeah. So so were you doing? Was that part of the program or sometimes? It was. We got to, uh, when
0: we were, prior to having our own genetic line, um, we were buying commercial genetics. And we saw, um, I mean, we had to do something. The value of grinding fine was understood. But the problem was we had 2% higher mortality and we could do an intervention and recover a lot portion of that. Mm. So we would pelletize these 800 with you know you'd use a half inch screen on a giant grinder it made complete crap for pellets but it it allowed some of those pigs to heal and and we gained mortality. Uh so I mean
2: there there is intervention strategies that can be done. Yeah, that's super interesting. I know you talked about uh feeding fat anything else on that arena that that we missed.
0: I don't think so um, Think you'll cover that. Least cost per pound of gain, I think we talked about uh, just briefly. I do want to talk about the you know, we built a formulation method to, that actually solved for the optimum energy density. And unfortunately, when you add in milling and delivery, so as, as energy goes down, more feed is demanded for the same amount of gain, so that there's an extra cost of milling and delivery. And so, we tried to incorporate that into. Um, it, well, it was built into our formulation. Mm-hmm. So it may be a truly linear function for just energy. It ends up being quadratic when you incorporate milling and delivery. So there's no one that's doing uh, a nonlinear uh, solver at this point that mm-hmm. I'm aware of. And so that's a concern. But it was a gentle curve. And so we solved that. Bill Holder solved that by doing intersecting energy ranges, which were approximated linear enough that we never ended up with a dual optimum. Because what your fear is in formulation is that, you know, you come down and you go up and then you come back down. Dual optimum is a problem because it can't solve for it. Um, There's not a a single unique solution. That's the key thing about uh, uh, least cost formulation and, and linear solvers. And so, he he would segment that, and that worked well enough. Um, and today, that process or that program, we had it custom built, and uh, and that thing is still unused today there. And I, to my knowledge, that's the only place in the world that does that and solves with that. Wow. And it there is a least cost per calorie method that I think it was Randy Mitchell um, helped uh, Bill Holder come to, and it. it just gave the cost per calorie. On an any basis, that's very useful too. Yeah.
2: So, so let me ask you, on that arena, it's not accounting for the pig price, right? So my question is, good markets, bad markets? Yeah, so the marginal cost, so where profit optimization occurs, marginal co- cost equals
0: marginal revenue, right? So your marginal cost, um, your revenue is not changing. Uh, again, I assume there was no change in growth rate. So that that's, goes back to one of my right. very first points. Right. It was more important for me to decide uh, how to establish energy density, and it was much simpler if I just decided that gain didn't change. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I just stuck my head in the sand. No, yes. <laughs> Yeah. But you can't apply into that function, Marcio, then the uh, value through fee conversion. Or through energetics, you can come back and enhance the value of uh, energy density too. So you can just give it a, a steeper slope um, to try to mimic that value. And so there's different ways, texni- techniques you can do it. But uh, I felt that we could always solve whether it was me or um, Rob Musser uh, believes that you know fat, you know feeding fat creates more average daily gain. We could solve both of those problems. He would just have a different slope than I would for the least cost per pound to gain method. And that thing, because it's not intuitive, if you solve for an energy level, well, now you got a choice between adding fat or adding mids and some blend of those two or DDGs. Well, that's not intuitive. The right answer might be adding fat and adding mids. Right, right or adding neither, or adding one, or adding just mids. Mm-hmm. And so that was the value of doing this. We could more fairly value all of our purchasing decisions, and our buyers, it made sense to them, they understood how to, and could then formulate strategies for that.
2: Very interesting. Yep. Before we move here, Jeff, to the you know managing the nutrition program, another point that I think it's important for uh, a new nutritionist taking over a production system is your thoughts on hey good mar- good uh and again goes I don't think it goes like you said it depends on growth or not if you're taking into account on energy but but let's zoom out and think about the overall diet. Um good times versus bad times Focusing on, on on that investment versus no saving money, cash flow, reduce the bleeding, uh, you know, the financial bleeding. What are your overall thoughts on that, especially the yeah. current situation?
0: Yeah, how timely of a, a question, Marcio. And, of course, I thought about um, the current situation, as you mentioned that, because what I said was what and I, I said this in 1998. Um, we were. We were owned by Murphy Farms, Wendell Murphy, and the question was to me, what are you going to do differently today um, now that hogs are $8? And the answer at that time was, um, in in my mind at that time, this is young and naive me, younger naive me. (laughs) If if I wasn't doing what was right before, there's nothing I'm going to do that really uh, is any more right. The only thing that that didn't apply to was cash conservation. And so yeah, it right. depends on your situation. And we did not in 98 face a situation where we couldn't get our pigs killed like we can today. Right. And so there are there are a host of different decisions that a person uh, can make. And I'll give you the best example I've got. We, we go into the fall of the year. Um, down in in, in in this area and I don't know if you know this but there's no feed mill that's ever been built that didn't have like 10% more demand than it had capacity for like the day after it was built. We planned for one number and then for whatever reason we added 10% more to it. Um, and so they're all undersized but down here we would see a 10% change in feed demand going out of the summer and into the fall. So weekly feed demand would go up by 10%. And we made 60,000 tons uh, in the central region, 60, 70,000 tons in North Carolina. So that's that's a whole feed mill shift from bottom to top, 7,000 tons. And so the dilemma uh, of that is what happens when you get behind? And oh, by the way, we have hurricanes down. There. Yeah. And they will... Mess up your dadgum uh, feed delivery and all that. So you get behind, you run out of capacity. What can you do? And honestly, we never, I never really thought about this until the recent turn of events where we started looking at wh- why might we actually slow a pig down um, where you're trying to hold them. Well, that same thing could apply. That—that That is one thing I probably could have done uh, very differently. And I missed that, you know, back then. Um, and so, I, you know, that that's a big one. There is a time where you could actually slow pigs down and save money, allow yourself to get caught up on feed. Uh, you get into weather events yeah. and uh, inclement weather events using a, you know, we sell a product for restricting intake. That's a great situation, actually, Uh, to use that in. You're so far behind, you can't get caught up. You intervene with a strategy like that to back everybody off. Yeah, you're going to give up weight, but if that allows you to get all your animals fed um, in a fairly short period of time, that is a real big, uh, big change that I never really thought through in my career at at, uh, Spitfield. So that's one where you can conserve cash And your objective is different. Um, You know, you're trying to hold pigs. And I never thought that was a good idea until today.
2: Right. Because basically, sure, your return on that pigs is not as good as when you're holding, but uh, could be worse, right? So you're... Could be.
0: And if you're pressing it into a different time window. And that's what... uh, If you can hold your pigs and buy somebody else's, well, then that, you know, just saying as a packer, that might not be a horrible idea, but, um, uh, yeah, there yeah. are, there's different strategies you can envision Super uh, today. There's, there's a lot of people need to get rid of a lot of pigs. If you could hold yours, that, that could be an economic decision uh, that you should look at. Um, not saying it's right or wrong, but yeah, uh, but there is, some of these scenarios, I, I never believed in hedging a loss. I thought that was the dumbest thing ever, and it is until you look at if you're in, if you're a banker investing in somebody and you look at the remaining variable costs. Yeah. And if you're looking at a return, and again, as a banker, I would say you should hedge that because yeah. what's fixed is fixed, what's done is done. Right. I need you to lock this in for me now. Lose less money. Well. Again, the, from a remaining variable cost standpoint, it's a profit, and, uh, and you know what it's going to be, and that's predictable for a banker and someone that's taking risks with you uh, at a particular point in time uh, that you're stressed, that could be a good thing. Um, one of the poorest decisions I ever saw, I know a good friend of mine uh, was at a production company in 98, and he was told he had to cut X out of his diet. X dollars. You have to cut 10 bucks a ton. So, I mean, I'm going to tell you about the only thing you can do is cut fat. Um, And you pay the piper in about three weeks. So that first load of feed is cheaper. And then it comes three days earlier. And you're like, yeah, that didn't help me. It made it worse, (laughs) in fact. Um, So there are some some really crazy things. But additives, uh, and if you think about this, paling. Um, as an integrated enterprise, you know, paling, if it makes more pounds and, uh, you may be losing on the live side, but they're gaining on net gaining on the packing side. You know, that's one you'd keep in. If you're losing today, you're losing money today, creating more pounds at a loss is not a good idea. So you would say, well, throw paling out and it's a great product. It's horrible. What's why it's not used, but uh, it's a fantastic product but there's a clear example. If you're in late finishing and your prospects are, you're going to lose money. I, you know, it's like cutting icing. That's not a horrible decision. If you're, if your animals are going to get discounted to no value by growing too much. And yeah. so there are some situations, but then as you move back, the further back you go, um, you know, it, it begs the question whether you should be in the business or not. If, if you, uh, if you can make more pigs and sell them in the future and they're profitable, you know, leave your sow additives. They're typically the most valuable to your enterprise. Um, but the closer you get to the harvest time in a really stru- struggling market, I think that's, uh, that's one, the closer to, to when you have to sell, uh, especially if it's increasing weight in today's world, that's not a great thing. And I think most people recognize that, uh, you can't sell your pigs, making them get bigger isn't a, isn't a winning proposition.
2: Right. Very interesting. So I guess for me, one of the highlights you mentioned is basically it's good to have an emergency diet on your formulation software. Of course, you might tweak a little bit, but it's there if you need it. Storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, the next virus, hopefully not. But it's good to have something like that. Next topic here, Jeff. Uh, so managing the nutrition program, what are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah, just uh, I wanted to cover that briefly because most people don't recognize we don't feed animals based on their weight. We schedule a budget typically based on, and and the bigger the system is, the more important it is to have a budgeting method in which you have a standard application. Um, but you're not, you can't have people out there deciding. What they're going to feed, that that never works, and so you need to be able to manage that for variances in place weight, movements of barns. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen, but most typically it's you know, a truckload of a product or a half truckload, depending on the size of your operations. I think in in uh, chickens it's like they get four deliveries of X Y Z, and that's it. You know, um, we get uh, eighteen or so. 15 to 18 deliveries in a finisher, nursery. Um, so scheduling that based on the barn size and monitoring that. That's the one thing that you, you, you are personally responsible. I'm going back to you. You have a personal responsibility of the execution. So having a budget and monitoring it. Um, I saved 40, 50 cents a pig by doing that. And I was, people didn't like me because of that but they had planned to place X, they placed Y. We overfed them by a dollar a head. And I'm telling you, it was 20, 30 cents a head um, to get that thing right. Maybe as much as 40 to 50 cents ahead. Now we would have 10, you know, less than 15 cents a head variance. Um, that just from normal stuff, just rounding of pockets and trucks and so forth, uh, it's not gonna be zero. But there was thirty to forty cents a head on the table every time, and I spent, you know, big portion of my career focusing on that because it's about execution every day, and so that, and then, uh, you know, QA, you know, if you think of QA in the sense of we, uh, Charles and I always did, you know, analytical variation, and we finally set up for years. Um, particle size, pellet quality, moisture, and fat. So those four things had an economic impact that we could draw from uh, doing an analysis and we would set it versus a target. So they had a standard for pellet quality. Um, And and in our days, it was 30%. When Dustin and I was there, we set it down to zero because we couldn't justify even 30%. So it would just give us an absolute value uh, on Pellet fines but you know uh, moisture protein and fat we didn't want to send water out we wanted our fat to be at uh, applied accurately so there's a penalty once you see the 10 percent on the upper and on the lower and we would calculate those penalties for the operations uh, leads at the feed mills and and then we would look at our QA and we would test feed and and we'd say oh well it needs to be this percent of theoretical and I'll be honest with you, that's one I never did a lot with except Phytase. Phytase is one that ultimately you should do the analysis on the finished product, and um, you should have zero samples ever fall below 90% of your theoretical. Zero. Um, And honestly, you can never afford to be wrong. So, from an analytical standpoint, I would set it at zero. So, even on the liquid systems, the errors are so expensive, you had to uh, just just overfeed it. And that's actually why I believe superdosing works is because people think they're actually adding phytase, and they're mm. shocked when they find out they might not be adding it at what they thought they were. And so you can never afford to be wrong with phytase. Great product, great technology. best one of, I had it on my uh, – one of the major advancements in my
2: career was phytase. Yeah. Five- Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get back to that, but, but I definitely agree. Um, Well, and then the final piece of
0: that, Marcio, right as I was leaving, I I actually thought our feed mills were fantastic. uh And then I started looking at like their individual batch data. I'm like, dang, they are not as good as I thought they were. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you know, we, we've invested in, in uh, helping customers, identify and, and manage and monitor that because it is, it's it's so important and it's, people are sh- shocked and you can't find it with all the best testing in the world. Um, you, you can't find it. And when the scale tells you if they're not, then you, you, have, you have to believe it.
2: On that arena, Jeff, okay, so what would be the top three key performance indicators if you're starting today as a nutritionist that you must have? there yeah, now where are you talking about for uh, overall overall could be could be finishing sales feed meal. what would be from your experience hey these three here i need to see it i need to see it on a weekly basis a daily basis or something like that
0: i i i focused on moisture uh grain moisture i don't know that there is just
2: three um there's probably more but i'm saying hey you better be doing this you know what i mean you know i i think you have to get down to execution so Knowing where your moisture's at
0: initially so you get an understanding is one of the most important things for a formulation. I think uh, knowing where your toxins are is important if you're in a risky area. I think um, feed conversion to me is not an indicator because I always varied energy dramatically. Um, So I would would come back. My batching accuracy would be right at the top of my list. Um, and then I'd come back to my South intake. take.
2: Very good. No, and I like it. It's funny because you say, um, you, you, you say, hey, you know, I wouldn't look at feed efficiency, and I agree, uh, but almost like as a no event, like, right? But a lot of people around the globe, that's the first thing they look, which is crazy. It's a huge opportunity, I think, for a lot of folks. Well,
0: it, it depends on what you know. So if you don't know, um, I would tell you that you can explain fee conversion very easily. What you can't explain is growth rate and mortality. Um, And so, you know, like I said, I I focused on, I'd call it adjusted fee conversion. And we would, uh, we did a crossover. So we'd take our budget and then we would adjust for the things. Had we budgeted for this growth rate and this mortality, Uh, Because I generally don't believe that, you know, the feed caused those animals. It may have caused those animals to die. I mean, that's possible, right? Uh, It may have caused the feed bad. But on the whole, um, uh, an accurately manufactured feed in which 95% of all pigs live and seem to perform normally, you don't draw a conclusion that feed was a significant contributor to mortality, as an example. How did it isolate those? That's why I say that. Um, but if you could account for those things, then it allows you to track the residual. So it's a residual analysis, right? And that's what's important to you because then you can start discovering, well, what's contributing to that? Is it because I overvalued my, uh, DDGs and, oh yeah, the, darn it, their, their fat le- levels lower than I thought, they've been burned, maybe buy it from a bad supplier, um. All those, but uh, the biggest changes um, that I've seen in my career, so we, when we weaned a bigger pig or an older pig, older is probably a more important term, older pig and we graded correctly, we gained 50 points of average daily gain, somewhere between 40 and 50. Moved from a 155 to a two, 195 to 205. System level average. In many of our divisions. And, you know, it's just you quit overstocking. I mean, there's really stocking density, the quality of that pig coming out, and then grading them correctly. Uh, We're such huge contributors to um, that system change. But for each point of gain, we dropped feed conversion by a point. I mean, that's the other part that uh, most people don't realize. I always say it's a point for point. Um, I'm probably wrong. I don't remember what it is nowadays, but for each one point increase in average daily gain, you get a, uh, a reduction in fee conversion. And going back to my model, uh, my intake model, Marcio, it's about a point. Um, and so it is a predictable change is, is really, I guess, what I'm trying to say. And you can assign it to energy. Um, we, we could do an analysis, a residual analysis where I'd build back um, to the week when feed was delivered, I would summarized the feed production for that week, the composition of that by mill, and we could basically build up what every group was fed, the average composition of what they were fed. I could then come in and assign an average particle size and pellet uh, quality. Um, so I'd get energy density, some prediction of all of those things. And not surprisingly, those all became very significant, and so you could see their impacts on fee conversion. And uh, not just because it's—I mean—they were really significant, like and and matched what we expected out of some of our research. And so you know that was pretty impressive and exciting. We had a lot of a lot of data. Um, it's still production data. It's not research data, but you know we overcame it with volume. Very interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the the beauty of large data sets: being able to see those trends. As long as you, people understand the difference between ca- causality and association and those things, right?
0: Yeah. In these cases, they were they were you were just looking for, you know, can you eke out that effect? And and it was not a pro- prescriptive change either. And those were those are harder to find because they get lost in the noise.
2: Very good, Jeff um how about production concerns that uh new nutritionists should be aware of
0: yeah and this is one that you and i like to talk about is uh i told you one of my key kpis is south south feed consumption of all the things that um, i learned feeding keep keep them thin to make them win is the old saying i think we used to have mm-hmm. uh, but feeding sows too much is a bad thing, and feeding them too much energy. So um, I have a friend that he'd been to Chile. He's like, oh, they're feeding 1,900 pounds of gestation, and so we need to feed our souse 1,900 pounds, and I'm going to tell you, that was a horrible decision. Yeah. They were feeding 1,900 pounds because they were feeding like 40% mids, Some, and we were feeding corn and soy, probably with a percent added fat to keep it not less dusty. Right, right. Um, and probably fine ground on top of that. So, yeah. you know, they needed to eat about 1,450 pounds a year uh right, gestation right.
2: feed. Yeah. And on that point, Jeff, like you said, 14 to 19, well, the difference in energy from those diets probably less than 10, very likely less, less than 10%. So pr- they were probably overfeeding too, right? Oh, the
0: 1,900, Yeah, uh, when we overfed those, that, that was a disaster. We had yeah. teeth falling out. We had all kinds of crap going on. But fat sows are horrible things. Um, yeah. The nineteen hundred again that for their low energy diets it was probably right.
2: You think? I, I still think it's probably high. Forty
0: okay. percent mids probably it probably would be right. I don't know. Okay. Um, they were probably overfeeding. When it comes you know. I'm not going to debate it with you because I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. No. Okay. But he, but the key on that, Marcio, was so our sow herd data, we recorded inventories every quarter um, for our accounting system. And uh, I might have, so I, I might have been monthly, but for sure quarterly. And uh, I think we called in inventories every month for our sow herd because we just needed to uh, reconcile our books because you mm-hmm. close and you close those quarterly. Mm-hmm. And so from an accounting perspective, we had that data. But I could correlate. Three months worth of gestation intake to a lactation intake, and they were perfectly inversely related. I know that doesn't surprise you, yeah. But it is absolutely true. We would see where we overfed sows; they would have reduced lactation intake, without without a doubt. Right. And uh, and so that's an important thing. One one of the topics that I like to say is. Uh, when I first started at, at Murphy's and, and NC State's, um, you know, figuring out how to feed to meet the energy demand seemed like a much more intuitive answer. The whole bump feeding thing, I, I was never a fan of it. Uh, it just seemed like you were just getting fat and a lot of feed in the south. And we had a lot of impaction problems. Um, we, you know, we had timers on water, so we might have been restricting water intake a little bit. You know, we have to manage water differently in North Carolina. We have lagoons that have to be managed, uh, and so, you know, I, I think it's a real challenge. Um, the understanding of obesity in the South herd—I I know that's a passion of yours. It's been a passion of mine. Uh, Ray Summerlin and I were on a plane coming back from Jimmy Tasha's. Um, we we were looking at when Jimmy was just getting started. We had given some PERS-infected pigs and brought him PERS. He's welcome for that, you know. In those days, we didn't know it. But, uh-huh. um, but we were coming back, and, and we ultimately decided uh, on a, a strategy for feeding our sows. The uh, PIC method of, of uh, body condition score was, it, it was just too much. We needed to simplify the decision. And ultimately, what Ray and I agreed on was that they could make a decision on is she in condition or not? Interesting. And we do this every two weeks. So the manager'd walk by and they'd have somebody in the front, somebody in the back, and they'd say, Is the sow okay? If they're okay, you just move on. If they're too thin, then they get bumped up. If they're too fat, they get bumped down. It's that it was literally. And then two weeks you come back and and check them again. There not the goes. next day. You had to give them time. Yeah. And so then they had a way, I believe they have a way that they go through the state now and do that, you know, certain times, uh, days that they have, you know, certain rows they go do, but it, you can't do it every day. You can't do it every week. It's, it's going to take 10 days or so to really see a change in those animals, but they start that conditioning immediately too. Some of the other things that we found, um, we were always restricting intake at breeding um, because there was a study that somebody yeah. found on uh, bump feeding, overfeeding gilts and they saw that it reduced uh, increased embryonic mortality or something like that.
2: Yeah. And if
0: you look at the actual study, it's because they were fat. It's just fat gilts yeah. fed a lot of feed. And I said, guys, here's what's going to happen. As a 13-year-old farrowing house manager in 1976, you know, that's what you should do is put a 13-year-old in charge of your damn sows um, because they know so much. Yeah. I, can, I can remember those big old Danish landrys coming out of the farm, out of the farrowing house that were a solid six inches wide because I was a farrowing house manager, feeding them twice a day, a scoop of each time whether they needed it or not, you know. I was horrible. I did a horrible Job. Yeah. And, and we had to get these animals back in condition. So we would have a sow that would milk tremendously. And it, it likens it back to an old story they tell in Texas about the Herefords. The Herefords at the turn of the 1800s to 1900s were fantastic milkers. And then they made some dumb recommendation, you know, about having a calf every year and cull all the ones that didn't. Well, they coal their best milking cows. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, That's what we end up doing. We have to get these animals back in condition. Make sure we feed them right. We fed, moved to feeding four times a day in the farrowing house, four to six times a day. And in the summer, which starts for us in mid-May, we started a summer sow program in which we started feeding at 3 and 4 a.m. Because guess what? They don't eat during the damn heat of the day. And we wanted that heat rise of digestion Uh, to not correspond to a breeding event. Whether or not that had any real outcome, I'm just going to tell you, it made good sense. And so you ought to do that anyway. And so we had to be out of that farm by 2 p.m., I want to say, in those days. And uh, people were were at home and relaxing during the heat of the day. Get all your feeding done. and, And then we moved to automated feeders, which was even smarter yet. So that sow could get up and but we had clean out that feed. We always made sure they had fresh feed, and uh, we we wasted a lot of lactation feed. But we had great sow productivity as an outcome from it. So keep them thin to make them win. Feed them when the demand is there. Don't restrict them in the farrowing house.
2: Makes total sense. No, that's perfect. Yeah. And like you said, right, Jeff, I mean, this whole thing about gestation, too much gestation feed, too, uh, they eat less lactation. It's one of the few areas, I think, in, in pig production that's like, it's black and white, it's going to happen, we can bet money, and, but not many people sometimes realize that.
0: No, I, I think that uh, they don't, it's really a long period of time for people to think about it. And so, left to production, they don't, they don't look at those relationships.
2: Yes, and then you get into the obvious, right? Oh, but they, well, the fetuses are growing, so they need feed. Well, they do, but you, I mean, so if in that case you start off at three pounds of feed and
0: you work them up to four point two instead of four and <laughs> a half, I mean, yeah, 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 Which it's, 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 it's amazing. Yeah, and it highly conserved that sow will uh, make that fetus. At, at her expense, I mean that's true in most species. They were right. be right. very difficult to avoid you
2: know? very interesting one uh, I just want to give a comment here, Jeff, on early gestation, like you said the what do you call uh you know there was that old study, and I agree that that you know they're fat and there's too much feed now there's one study coming out uh let's see here uh was was accepted a, a while ago here a month or two ago. From Dr. Maum, uh Andre Malman from Brazil there. Uh super interesting, okay. I just want to bring that up. They fed 1.8 kg of a corn soy diet, 2.5 and 3.2 for nor ideal, let's call it ideal condition, okay? And when you give a 3.2 kg, which what seven pounds, seven pounds of uh roughly seven pounds there from a corn soy diet, that reduced total borne. Uh, about one. So the point is, if they're ideal, you you don't need to give a seven pound to ideal uh, ideal sow and I th- or give, and and I think we we would agree on that, right?
0: Yeah, I think the other thing you have to keep in mind, uh, Marcio, is we don't need a bunch of eight hundred pound sows. So we are restricting feeding and watching your coals. Um, so we tried to keep our prime coals in, in the five hundred to five fifty range. Um, and so we would, we were intentionally trying to keep their weight down. They take up less space in the farrowing house. They tend to not lay on pigs as much. Um, that's one of the beauties of the Michon, right? That we looked at for all those years is fairly small body size. Um, you know, they don't fill up the crates. Uh, those are all real issues. I, I would prefer to not have a, a 600 pound coal saddle. You know, I'd, I'd rather she be five. 50 or 500, you know, at six periods because I don't have to maintain her. I mean, a smaller framed sow is a good thing. I would say we don't understand well today how to keep a sow small framed, Man. one that really has the potential to grow really, really big. Um, but we also know then, so guilt, one of the things we found is sows didn't have to lose weight during lactation. They just didn't. Now, gilts generally did. And I think that's because we did. We were feeding single diets at that time. We knew we could uh, feed a gilt diet. Um, and I think you could get them close. They would lose like 2% maybe. But our sows lost zero. Um, you did not have to lose any weight in the farrow cows. And so these gilts, uh, I, I made a note here, that, You know, they used to eat two pounds less. And that's a big concern. Because that's why you have to feed them a higher nutrient dense diet. They have less maintenance energy to stand there, but their milk demand is just as great as a, you know, if they're because we always stuff them full of pigs too, right? They're the ones with the full udder, so let's fill them up.
2: Right, interesting. (laughs) No, that's that's great, Jeff. um, Let's move to the next topic here, Jeff. So major advance advancements in nutrition and, and production from that standpoint
0: yeah i wanted to talk about uh, just a couple of these things that i think in my career i probably missed uh, significantly some things but but i think phytase you know it's an interesting lesson we when we first started talking about phytase we were taught that that protein was going to be denatured in the gut so that's a massive advancement um in the state of art of nutrition that we could make a protein last all the way through the stomach and be effective. So that's changed a lot of uh, paradigms about nutrition and, uh, it was just a remarkable technology, um, helped us also understand phosphorus and the importance of phosphorus. It is one of the first, uh, order nutrients, um, without it, you can't accrete protein, you can't accrete bone, so animals will stop growing. Particle size, I talked about that earlier. I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I think people need to get in their mind that there's no reason we shouldn't be grinding to 100 micron. <laughs> 100 micro, yeah. I don't think it matters in soy. I think it absolutely matters in corn, and the value is all in, not in the endosperm. It's in the pericarp and the tip cap and the germ. Um,
2: and, and 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 you mentioned briefly about that, but I know it's a big, big, big concern of folks around the globe and also in the U.S. about, uh, you know, the ulcers, right? You mentioned a little bit about that, but the, what's your overall thoughts there? Yeah, I can't understand
0: why there hasn't been some focus on uh, that. I can tell you there
2: are lines that are not susceptible. Yeah. That's that's a good point, and then like you also mentioned how so there's ver- there's genetic variants out
0: there. Let's put it that that way. So it is selectable.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Very nice. How, next one, Jeff. So, I, and I had down
0: you know lean pigs in my career, and I think we're pretty stable there. Pork quality. Um, I think one of the massive uh, advancements was ideal protein to energy ratios. So the combination of Lee Chiba's work and uh, others that did the energy-to-calorie ratio or energy-to-protein uh, ratios and then the Ideal Protein. To me, that one's just uh, such an important aspect. And and I think paline. Uh, paline was such a fun advancement. I hate to... And, and DDG's. DDG's was incredibly uh, painful. And when we first started seeing that, uh, and we knew that transition was going to be horrible and exciting all at the same time.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. And one that I would add there overall, uh, Jeff, I don't know if you agree, it was just a circovirus vaccine was something that was. Yeah. And I, I guess that's true. There's three silver bullets in
0: this world, in my view,
2: <laughs>
0: world of pig production, paline, the, uh, the right circovirus vaccine. Right. Cause that was a, like a, permanent five percent shift in in uh, uh, number of pigs available to market well and then i'm i'm not saying this because of NutriQuest, but liponate liponate i mean there are just so few products that work that predictably well um and and there,
2: there's very you know that's just the three that i look at and go well they are predictably and and five days i think you would agree on that one too yeah, but I think that one's intuitively. And once we got past the fact that the you know we always thought
0: that the thing things were going to be digested by the. Yeah, no, I agree. That that's a remarkable product. I agree. And,
2: and I guess another way to put those things that are just said is: Hey, you know, when you don't have it, if you don't have paling, if you don't have five days, if you don't have, Zika vaccine, you know it, right? Yep. Yeah. Anything else on that arena there, or you covered the major advancement? Yeah, and,
0: and and then I had a uh, list of the future, where do I think it's headed in the future, because I don't think they're uh, separate. I think that um, Larry Pope, one of the craziest things I ever heard somebody say, was we were talking about, in the summertime, why these pigs weren't growing, and it created bad carcasses, and... and uh, you know, we worked with Mickey Latour at Purdue, and what they found was that in heat stress, you know, fat uh, fat cell fill was minimized. I mean, you just wouldn't get any. So you created a very thin, poor quality belly in this example. And what uh, what Larry Pope said was, "Well, why don't you just go air condition the barns?" And I just thought that was the dumbest thing ever a human being could say. Um, but in retrospect, he's right. Um, he, he, he doesn't know technically why he's right. Uh, technically, it's a real issue. But uh, in all fairness, the only reason we wouldn't air condition barns is because uh, we have to ventilate so much because we have such a horrible waste handling system. Interesting. And if you think about this, I, I, I said air conditioning uh, and integrated factories, the Chinese, you know, pig barn, the big tall one factory farm. But honestly, if you looked at the value of the nitrogen that we leave to a farmer, it's worth um, in the order of 18 to 20 dollars per pig space per year. So now you can use amino acids and all that. That gets you to like 18. And so It's a really interesting exercise. That's where all the value is, like $2, $3 a phosphate. Um, And then if you could gasify that manure, you might get $5 in energy value. But uh, the the key point is that you look at enclosing this, keeping diseases out, keeping, you know, quit hauling pigs up and down roads. If I have to look into the future, I think you're going to see pig production. There's no reason to haul a bunch of finishing pigs around. That's dumb spreads disease, leave them in one spot, kill them in one spot, um, recover the waste. I, I think that uh, you, you've got to get to these things. I China's proven that out. I don't think they're going to be there. Uh, somebody else would have to develop it first, but I don't know. Uh, I think those are, are two things, and I think you look at a 100-micron grind, it's real. And is that a liquid feed delivery system? Maybe. I, I don't think that pelletizing offers some feed sanitation capabilities. That's so. That's the only advantage that pelletizing and a diverse and the ability to handle a diverse bulk density. But if you could do liquid feeding and handle, uh, uh, take care of the handling properties of the feed, the only thing left then is feed sanitation. And if you're in one facility. You no, know, I mean, do you have to have a pellet mill? No. Could it be valuable? Absolutely. Wow.
2: Yeah, that's... But good. I think
0: looking at diets, Marcio, in the 95, uh, 90 to 100% of the products that can be digested. So like your grains, I think you're approaching close to 95 plus percent digestible. Wow.
2: Yeah, that would be huge there. Very good. Wow. Yeah, I like this. Super... Um, Those last few points here Jeff very uh, new ideas right I like that since
1: 1971 Zinpro corporation has focused on one thing trace mineral nutrition as the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry Zinpro performance minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe To know more, go to zinpro.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com.
2: Jeff, overall, I appreciate that. Uh, Last question here I have um, for the new production nutritionist. Any overall word of advice there?
0: Oh, I don't know. It's a really... uh, Fun thing to do. I actually, I, dream, I very much encourage people to go out into production and get that experience, and then do something after that. Um, it is uh, a high stress job, and uh, that's okay. You, you, but you learn a lot, and uh, you know, jump right in. That's my view. But that experience is unparalleled. Get in, get it, you know, get involved with your packer, and uh, and be the leader. I mean, you need to take charge Own that entire operation of feed operations from, from a personal standpoint, The people don't have to report to you. Uh You're a servant to all those people. You serve them and you keep that in mind and they'll, they'll love you. Um, You're there to help them and make the enterprise more successful. And if you take that mentality, it'll, it'll uh, transform your life and you'll, you'll have fun, you know, Make friends with all the people that are involved with execution of your feed program. That's a different mentality. It is yours to own all the way through.
2: And, uh, very good. And what, what, what would be a good schedule for, Hey, how often to be at, at uh, feed meal and a uh, farm and office. What, what's the good ratio there for this? I don't know.
0: You, you do need to see what's going on. The problem is the bigger the organization, right? You no, know, you're, uh, you need to get out and, and uh, you need to talk to the people for sure and get out with them. I'd say once a month, you know, you need to be on a farm and in and, and a feed mill at a minimum. I, I dealt with a, a huge operation. So, you know, that was hard to do. Um, but, you know, I also dealt with marketing with those animals. And so back to this animal scientist role, you, you need to pick some people that you can have fantastic relationships with. And you can get on farms with them and see what's actually going on so that when you're sitting in your office, in your brain, you got a picture of what's going on in that barn while you're thinking about this problem. And and it's really hard, uh, really big operations. You probably need to see
2: more um, because you just, you'll be shocked by what you see. It's super diverse and super hard. Very good, Jeff. Anything else to wrap up here today? I don't think so. I think we
0: covered a lot of the the things you and I had kind of set out and, uh, hopefully round a, a full story of, you know, how, how a person kind of comes into their career, what they should think about.
2: Yeah. I love it and I uh, appreciate it. And I appreciate if anyone that is stuck all the way to the end, Jeff, we need to congratulate them. This is a new format, too, right? Where we decided yep. to go long without any time restrictions and uh, really have a conversation. So thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you, Marcio. It's always a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Please share our episodes with as many people as you can so we can continue to impact the life of swine professionals from around the globe with the wisdom of our great guests. Before you go, make sure to get in our waitlist for the Swine Talks web conference, the first online conference of the global swine industry, an update on hot topics, and we're even going to have some controversial topics of the global swine industry, so you can leverage that knowledge in your day-to-day. Go to SwineTalks.com and get on our wait list. We'll talk soon.